to Psalm 32. Blessed are the forgiven, Psalm 32. And out of reverence for God's word, please rise as we uh, read the scriptures together. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is God's word. Please be seated. If you don't know, our denomination, EFCA, Evangelical Free Church of America, uh, we have 17 districts serving some 1,500 churches. And uh, EFCA West is one of the districts. And today we are honored to have uh, uh, Reverend Paul Schlipp from uh, EFCA West come and uh, share the word of God. And again, he is no stranger <laughs> to us. And he's come um, quite a number of times, <laughs> even before I started my ministry here at EFC, uh, CFC. And um, uh, for Paul, he is um, wearing three hats. Uh, talking about the EFCA West, and he's the director of Biblical Theology and Credentialing, and also Pastoral Care, and also Placement Support. So that's a lot of work. Um, so we're glad that he can come. And also last year in July, he in, uh, moved down, up, actually moved up to Bakersfield. So this morning he traveled, he drove two hours to get here. He said only two hours. I said, well, actually, that's... <laughs> But anyway, we just thank God for him, and uh, he's here safely. And also, I explained to him that today we're gonna, we're not gonna have that many people here, uh, probably about 50 or so. And in the immediate response, uh, he said, uh, is that because they knew that I was coming? Uh, so I wanna assure you that not because of that, and you know that we have the high school retreat with that. So, Reverend Paul Well, it's hard not to get a little paranoid because I noticed on the slide that the men's retreat is the next time I'm speaking here, March 10th. So, what can I say? 
Yeah, we did move to Bakersfield from Huntington Beach, and everybody hears that and goes, what? But we really like it there. Um, it's been a good move for us, and it put it, us closer to a couple of our grandkids, so that was also a real plus. Uh, it's a great privilege to be back again. I was glad I didn't have to stand because this is not my first time here. Um, but we're going to be in Psalm 32 this morning, the psalm that we just had read by Victor. And it is one of my favorite songs uh, from that collection of songs, the book of Psalms, uh, Psalm 32. And I know culturally we might kind of disagree on what constitutes an actual sin, you know, what are the behaviors. Uh, we heard an example from Philip this morning, certain words that we ought not to say. Uh, but I think we all agree with Garrison Keeler, who said there just are things that go on uh, that are, we're all capable of rottenness. And it can't be explained away by our diet or the family we grew up in. We're just, we're broken, right? Things are not the way they're supposed to be. Um, Psalm 32 is the first of the confession psalms that are in our collection of songs. Um, what's unique about this one, you may be familiar with Psalm 51, in which David very specifically acknowledges his sin against Uriah and Bathsheba and that whole incident. What makes this psalm a little different about confession is that there is not a specific sin that David is confessing. He's just talking about the blessing that comes from actually confessing our sin because of the character of God. Uh, the superscription above it says, A Psalm of David, a maskil. And I think we've got, there we go. Um, now, maskil is, either means a contemplation, think about this, or it means instruction, learn about this. But either way, David wants us not to just sing this song, as we so often do. In fact, the first song that we had chosen for us by the worship team this morning was, how often we can come to worship and make it about us and forget that it's about God. And David, in writing this masculine, is saying there are things we need to think about God's character and our relationship to him that we ought not to hurry on through it. And so this psalm became Augustine's favorite psalm. In fact, when he knew he was dying, he had this psalm written on the wall near his bed so that he could look at it and meditate on it and he said, the beginning of knowledge is to know oneself a sinner. So let's take a look at verse 1 of Psalm 32. It says, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man, and that means any person, regardless of which gender, the person to whom Yahweh does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now this is the second time that a song starts out in our collection of psalms with blessed is the person or blessed is the man. The first time that occurs is in the very first psalm. Let's take a look at verse 1 of Psalm 1. It says, How blessed is the man or woman who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his or her delight is in the law of Yahweh. And in his law he meditates day and night. So the first time that a song in the collection of Psalms starts out with blessed is the person, it's blessed is the person who does what they're supposed to do, who meditates on the law of God. They do not 
uh, walk in the counsel of the wicked. They don't stand in the path of the sinners. They don't sit in the seat of scoffers. Their delight is in Yahweh. Now, if you're like I am, you, you think to yourself, that is great, and I love those days that are pretty much uh, categorized by delighting in God and recognizing how great and wonderful he is to me. But what about those days when that hasn't really been my experience? When, in fact, I was walking in the counsel of the wicked, or I was hanging around with the scoffers, or I was not loving my wife the way she ought to be loved, and not nurturing my children. What happens when my life isn't categorized by all these great things of walking with God? And why is it so easy to sin? Well, I found a cartoon that I think illustrates why it's so easy to sin. Right? We got truth, justice, and wisdom one way, and 99 cent burgers if we go to the right. And we tend to go to the 99 cent burgers, right? Because we want to feed our own flesh. We want to feed that part of us that'll say, ah, oh, that brings me pleasure. So even as a minimalist, right, I can enjoy it. I don't have to throw it out because it brings me pleasure. And that's why we tend to go to sin. If sin wasn't so pleasurable, we wouldn't go there, right? We tend not to repeat painful choices. Not always, but tend not to. And as Paul points out in Romans 7, we know the good we ought to do, but we don't do it. We know the evil we should avoid, but we go there anyway, because we are broken. And Psalm 32 is the answer to what happens if I'm not the Psalm 1 person at the moment, but in fact I am doing the very thing that I know I ought not to do. What do I do with that? Psalm 32 says, well, there's, a, there's certainly a blessing for walking in fellowship with God, but there's also a blessing for knowing the forgiveness when we haven't. So let's look at verse 1 again. How blessed is he or she whose transgression is forgiven. And Hebrew poetry rhymes thought. It doesn't rhyme sound, which makes it very easy to translate into various languages because the rhyming has to do with the concept, either by contrast or by comparison, rather than rhyming a sound. And so here, David uses three different words for sin in order to give us a sort of full-orbed expression of what is it like to fail to be the way that God designed us to be. And his first word, transgression, is a going away or a departure from. And Alexander McLaren writes, you do not understand the gravity of the most trivial wrong act when you think of it as a sin against the order of nature or against the law written in your heart or as the breach of the constitution of your own nature or as a crime against your fellows. You have not got to the bottom of the blackness until you see that it is a flat rebellion against God himself. See, we all tend to compare ourselves with each other or with us on our best days instead of measuring ourselves against the character of God, which is, of course, absolutely perfect. And this transgression is the idea of going away from the standard, going away from God's perfection. The second word is the word sin in our translation, both in the ESV and in the New American Standard. And this word is the Hebrew equivalent of the word that is most often used for sin in the New Testament. And that is the idea of missing the mark. And the idea comes from archery, or in our day, guns, whatever. You're aiming at a target, and it doesn't quite get there. And the idea is not that 
oh, it was just off the circle. I mean, it's like it didn't hit the mark at all, right? So it may have fallen 50 feet short or 25 feet short or three feet short. It still falls short. It still does not match up to the character of God. And then the third word that David uses here is the word iniquity. And it means corrupt or crooked or twisted. Paul picks up this concept in Philippians chapter 2. In verse 15 it says, So that you, followers of Jesus, may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in in the midst of a crooked. And that's the word scolios. If any of you either have or know people who have scoliosis, right? It's a, it's a bending, a twisting of the spine. And he uses a second word, perverse, which means to be twisted away from. Not twisted toward the character of God, but twisted away from the character of God. So he says, you need to be above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you would appear as lights in the world. That our lives as followers of Jesus ought to be such a a reflection of the character of God that the people go, what is different about you? You're not twisted like everybody else. Now we would all acknowledge that we're still not perfect, right? But we're allowing the Holy Spirit to keep making that change in us and we're willing to acknowledge to God and to others that we have fallen short. G.K. Chesterton in his book entitled Orthodoxy said, certain new theologians, and by the way this was in the uh, either late 1800s, early 1900s when he wrote this. But new theologians dispute original sin, which is the only part of Christian theology which can really be proved. Right? We can look at certain behaviors and say, that is not a reflection of the character of God. Right? Now, there's other points of Christian doctrine. You can't point at something specific like the changed heart. You can look at evidences, but you can't actually see it. There's no little door to open up and say, see, I got a clean heart. But sin is something you can look at and say, yep, that's it. That's an expression of that brokenness. And I think we've come so far that I can imagine a day when certain people could show up at a church office and it would be much like this cartoon. This petition requests changing sinner to person who is morally challenged, right? Because we don't want to admit we're sinners. And yet that is part of our experience is that we sin. We are now new creatures in Jesus Christ, but we still continue to sin. We will never be sinless. We do pray that we'll sin less, but we're not going to be sinless. In fact, when I was pastoring still, I would say to people, you you know the only kind of people who can come to our church are sinners. So if you're a sinner, you're certainly welcome to be here. If you are past that somehow, we don't have a place for you. (laughs) Because... The gathering, even on Sunday mornings, is a gathering of people who have failed to keep God's character at the middle of their life. They've failed to keep that standard. We've fallen short. We've become twisted. So then what is forgiveness? I've talked about it a little bit, but not really defined it. And so David in this song, having used three words for sin, now uses three words for forgiveness. So we'll go back to verse 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. This is a Hebrew word that means to be lifted off. We're carrying this burden. And by forgiveness, it's been lifted off. It's no longer attached to us. We're not carrying the weight. In his classic book on forgiveness, Lewis Smead says, forgiveness is discovering that the captive has been set free and that I've been the captive. 
point he makes is that often when people have sinned against us, they're not the ones losing sleep. We are. We're carrying the burden of their sin in, in addition to our own. So when, when David talks about being forgiven, it's that idea that the load has been lifted. We don't have to carry the guilt and the shame. In Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan described it this way. By analogy, he talks about Pilgrim here. His burden loosed from off his shoulders, fell off from off his back, and began to tumble, and so continued to do so till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in and was seen no more. You can't find any evidence of the sin because it's covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Having used the word covered, the second word in verse 1 for forgiveness is the word covered. And it's a word that has its imagery from the Day of Atonement under the Hebrew law, in which the Ark of the Covenant, which was in the most holy place, had a copy of the Ten Commandments in it. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, the priest would come in and he would sprinkle blood onto the covering for the Ark of the Covenant. And so when God looked down at his law, there was blood between him and the law which everyone had broken by failing to live out that commandment. So there's a covering that stands between God's holiness and our own brokenness. In the Greek New Testament, that word comes to us as the word propitiation. And it's the idea of a satisfaction for the having broken the law. There was a payment that needed to be paid, well, that's been satisfied. It's been paid in full, which you may remember is one of the things that Christ said from the cross. It is finished. It's paid in full. There's no, there's nothing left that God, and one of the verses says, can even chide you for. I don't know about your family, but I grew up in a family that knew how to chide, right? That's that finger wagging. You know, it's, well, it may not have been a really bad thing, but it, you shouldn't have done that. And the scripture said there's nothing even left. Not only is the grosser sins covered, but there's nothing left that God can even chide you for. Kind of, shouldn't do that. And then the third word is found in verse 2. How blessed is the man to whom God does not impute or count iniquity. There's a bookkeeping term for those of you who like to work with numbers. And it's the idea that there's nothing in your column. There's nothing held against you. There's no account of your wrongdoing. Paul quotes these verses from Psalm 32 when he's explaining to the Christians at the church at Rome about what happened when Jesus died and was raised from the dead. God writes into our side of the ledger Christ's absolute holiness because Christ himself was willing to take on his ledger all of the things that were against us. It's not a fair trade, by the way. It's not even close. But Christ took on himself our sins so that he could give us his righteousness. So when God looks down that column for you, what he will find is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That, that's astounding that God would love us enough to take our sin on himself so that he'd give us his righteousness, it is definitely not a fair trade. But does, he, does God just sort of look the other way, you know, all the other outs in free? Well, let's look at Romans chapter 3, beginning with verse 21. 
But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness or the rightness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, Jew or Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation or a satisfaction in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness or his rightness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Let me see if I can try to illustrate this for you, because there are three persons involved in this process of redemption. So you've got the three. If we can go to the next slide, there we go. We've got God the Father, who's absolutely holy. You've got Jesus Christ, who's also holy, but took on himself flesh, so he became a person. And then you've got everybody else. So as Paul goes through this, he starts with justification. God is able to justify or declare us right with himself. How does he do that? Next arrow. Jesus redeems us. He buys us back from our slavery to sin. Right? He pays the full price. And in pay paying the full price, we've got the third arrow. God the Father is satisfied or propitiated by the price that Jesus paid. So let's go through that again. God is able to declare us right because Jesus paid a price to redeem us from our sin. That price was enough that God was satisfied. He didn't say, well, that was close, but not quite enough. He's fully satisfied. Now look at those arrows. How many of them start with us? None of them start with us. They start with either Jesus or God the Father. We are the object of those things, right? We get justified. We get redeemed because Jesus satisfied the Father. But none of it starts with my good works or the family I came from or the church I attend or just trying harder to be good. It all starts with God. And that's where I think sometimes in my own mind, even after all these years of knowing Jesus, 45 years ago already. But there are still times when my mind goes to, yeah, but I, I've got to be good because I've got to somehow contribute to this thing. It starts and ends with God. And then I accept that as a free gift given to me. And then because I am forgiven so much, yes, I want to walk in a way that pleases him. Yes, I want to do things where he goes, yeah, that was good but not because I think it's going to earn me any kind of points. It starts and ends with Jesus Christ. So what happens if we don't deal with the fact that we've committed sin? What happens if we just kind of hold on to it? We become like Gollum and it's my precious. Right? We want to hold it. We want to hide it. We want to take care of it. What happens if we don't take care of it? David picks this up in verse 3 call this the cost of silence. He said, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as the fever heat of summer. 
Selah, which is a musical term, which means we're going to play some music now so you can think about what was just sung. That when I don't acknowledge my sin before God, then I end up holding on to it, even though it's already been paid for. I hold on to it, and I feel badly because I love God so much. But if I don't acknowledge it to Him, I just keep carrying the load. Calvin of Calvin and Hobbes illustrates this, I think. He said, I feel bad that I called Susie names and I hurt her feelings. I am sorry I did it. And Hobbes says, well, maybe you should apologize to her. To which Calvin says, I keep hoping there's a less obvious solution, right? To actually go to the person and tell them that I sinned against them. Well, in the same way, there are times when I don't want to go to God and say, I sinned. And yet God says, we need to be in agreement on this. I've already paid it all, but now you're carrying the load you don't have to carry. Would you just come to me and acknowledge it? In the same way that Calvin needs to simply go to Susie and say, I did wrong by you. And I acknowledge that. In the same way we don't go to the Father because we just we feel the shame of it. We feel the brokenness of it. It might be the 100th time we've committed that same sin. We were angry at someone or said things we shouldn't do. We painted graffiti on the slides at the park. Whatever it is that we did, we're unwilling to come to our Heavenly Father who has paid it all and say, I have sinned. And when we don't do that, then we carry the load. And that's why David then goes on in verse 5 to talk about why it's so important to go ahead and acknowledge it Look at verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. And there's Selah again, right? We're going to play some music while you think about this. And just as he used three words for sin and three words for forgiveness, he now uses three words for confession. The first is, I acknowledged it. The second is, I didn't hide it, which was interesting because that's the same word that was used for the word cover when God covers my sins. And what David is saying by that is, I shouldn't be hiding my sins. It's already covered by God. It's covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, we now know in the New Testament. So why are you trying to cover it from God? You think he can't see? I love that psalm where David says, if I were to go to hell, God could still see me there. If I go to heaven, he can see me there. If I go to the deepest part of the sea, he can see me. Wherever I go, God can see me. So what, how in my own mind can I somehow think that God won't see my sin? I mean, that is a definition of insanity. If he can see everything, so why not go ahead and come to him and say, God, you're right. In fact, this word in the New Testament, uh, when we get to 1 John 1, 9, where, you know, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. It really means to just say the same. And what does God say about our sin? You sinned, it's awful, and I paid for it. That's what confession is about, acknowledging I failed, but it's already covered in Jesus Christ. Therefore, let's get back in fellowship, right? Instead of me hiding and running in the other direction. The third word was uh, confessing it, just to say the same thing. And we ought to do this quickly. Verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. 
not songs of shame, not songs of chiding, not songs of judgment, but songs of deliverance. My sin has been covered, and that's why he puts in another Selah. We're going to play some more music while you think about this. All of your sins are covered. They're taken out of the way. They've been removed. And you are the place I should go. And I should do it quickly. Isaiah picks up the same thought in Isaiah 55. He says, Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let them return to Yahweh. And he will have compassion on him. You hear that? When we come to him, he'll have compassion for us. He'll feel for our situation. And to our Elohim, our strong God, for he will abundantly pardon. Not just pardon and then we'll hit a certain point where we'll say, well, you know, you used your last forgiveness a while back. No, it's he will abundantly pardon. He will give and give and give again. Which brings us to verse 8. Continuing this use of three synonyms for completeness, David now adds to the words for sin, forgiveness, confession, three words for training or learning. He talks about instructing in verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or the mule which has no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near you. In other words, if you don't have control on them, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he or she who trusts in Yahweh, loving kindness shall surround him. I love that word, loving kindness. In the Hebrew, it's chesed. It's the idea of covenant love. I will love you no matter what because we're in relationship. He says, Yahweh's loving kindness will surround him. Be glad in Yahweh and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy all you who are upright in heart. Psalm 30, just two songs earlier, had several lines that are very much like verses 11 and, or 10 and 11 here. There David writes in verse 5 of Psalm 30, For God's anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. Why? Because I'm forgiven. It's gone. Gone, gone. Yes, my sins are gone. I began singing that song to my grandkids the other day. They had never heard it. And so when I talked about buried in the deepest sea, yes, that's good enough for me. They were like, I didn't know you could go that low, Grandpa. Uh, but it's that idea that it's gone forever. It's rolled off. It can't be found because it's covered by the sacrifice of Jesus. This is why, like Augustine, Psalm 32 has become one of my favorite songs. W.H. Alden, the British poet, says, I love to sin. God loves to forgive. The world is admirably arranged. Now that's a little cynical. But from a biblical standpoint, it's true. There is still that brokenness in me. that The Holy Spirit is healing, but where I sin. But God is right there with his compassion. And, again, not just calling all the other outs in free, not looking at the fact that I've broken his law, but Jesus fulfilled the law 
took my sin on himself. When Jesus died, it wasn't just for my benefit. It was in my place. He took my sin on himself, and then he gives to me his righteousness. And when I stand before God, it won't be because I did a good job. It'll be because Jesus Christ is my substitute, and it's paid in full. Which brings me to the two words. Since I've preached here a few times, you may be glad to hear them. It's now what? It means one, I'm almost done. And two, we ought to think about how to apply this. So let me suggest some things. What do we do now? We are blessed. First, wouldn't it be great if we could be blessed by delighting in the law of Yahweh and meditating on it day and night? And we have those moments, all of us as followers of Jesus, when the blessing comes from, I know I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I know I'm where I'm supposed to be. I'm following God's law. What a blessing to be there. But we can also, when that fails, be blessed, as it says here in Psalm 32, by having my transgression forgiven, having my sin covered, and having my iniquity not imputed to my account because it's already been paid, and God will not charge twice. So the first now what is, let's be blessed, primarily by following Jesus, but even when that fails, by knowing that Christ wasn't surprised by that sin, so let's come and confess it so that I can be back in fellowship with God because the sin's already been taken care of. The second, so what for me is YBH, which means, yeah, but how? <laughs> how do I do this? First of all, acknowledging our sins. I mean, who, again, who are we kidding when we somehow pretend we haven't sinned? Secondly, not hiding our iniquity, but instead being covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the third, confessing, saying the same thing about that sin. It was wrong, and it's been paid for. Repeat that after me. It was wrong, and it's paid for. That's the part that sometimes is so hard for us, because we still somehow think, I've got to pay that. And Jesus Christ says, nope, it's paid in full. Which brings me to the third, so what, or now what? Then what? What do I do? First of all, don't be stupid. Like an animal, it's got to be led around by God. Learn that I need to come to God very quickly and acknowledge my sin. Secondly, trust in the Lord. Trust that when he says it's paid in full, it's paid in full. That's a faith step, right? Because, again, we can't look at something inside of me to see that I have been cleaned up. But by faith, I say, it's gone. I can't find it. God can't find it, more importantly. And the third is be glad, rejoice, and shout for joy. Can I just tell you, preaching around at different churches, I, I sometimes wonder how many of our congregations, generally speaking, have really gotten the point that our sins are forgiven. Because we come in and we're all sober and somber and like our cat just died. And we ought to come on Sunday morning saying, my sins are forgiven. I stand right before the God of the universe, not in my own righteousness, because boy, then I'd have to worry, am I saved today? Am I saved tomorrow? Right? If, it's, if it comes down to me. But it's in Jesus, who is absolutely perfect. So I ought to come to church going, it's great to be here, because all of my sins are gone, because of the love of Jesus Christ, and because he took my sin on himself and offers to me his righteousness. Let's pray. Father, oh, how easily we take this for granted, or we don't believe it. 
So, Father, would you take your words that David wrote in this Psalm 32, and would you allow it to permeate us? Would, it, would you marinate our minds and our hearts in this truth that what keeps us from God is not our sins anymore, it's our unwillingness to be in fellowship with him, to keep believing the lie that somehow the, sh the, uh, the shame and the, the guilt are still there. Father, would you impress on us so that then, as we live the rest of this day and tomorrow, if you should tarry, that our lives do reflect a great joy, shouts of joy, because the biggest issue in our life has been solved, and we are right with you. I pray these things in Christ's name.